Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Just this week, the Times of London reported that workers in the United Kingdom are a pretty miserable bunch. According to new research, nearly half of Britons dread getting out of bed on workday mornings. And one in four said they never have a single happy moment while on the job. Making matters worse, the study asserts that workers are starving for appreciation and recognition. And as I read these stats, the first thing that crossed my mind was, how in the world can this still be true? I mean, how is it that job satisfaction and employee engagement aren't getting better when there's been so much discussion around the topic for at least the past five years? So on today's show, we're going to go across the pond to London to ask an expert his opinion on why our workplaces haven't made the great improvement we might have expected by now. And as a hint, his point of view on this is that things will never really get better anywhere in the world until we embrace new ways of thinking about human motivation and workplace management practices. A while back, I asked Wharton professor and best-selling author Adam Grant, if he could recommend people he knew would be great guests on this podcast. And knowing our theme and focus, Adam's first suggestion was Dan Cable, who's here with us today. Dan is a professor of organizational behavior at the London Business School, and his research is devoted to employee engagement, change, organizational culture, and leadership mindset. He's also the author of the new book called Alive at Work, which argues that there's a biological reason so many of us are discontented at work. And our focus today will be on exploring the many ways managers can reactivate what he calls our seeking system that holds such great sway over human behavior. While living in England today, Dan was educated in the United States at Penn State University and Cornell University, where he earned his PhD, and he works with many large global companies. And so I'm certain everything that we're about to discuss is going to have universal application. And with that, let me welcome you to the podcast, Dan Cable. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you, and I want to just get right into it. At the beginning of your book, you cite Gallup's low American workplace engagement figures. But Gallup has also shown that the stats are even worse across the pond. And last time I looked, they reported that just 15% of workers in the UK were fully engaged in their jobs. And so I thought of you, Dan, this week when I read in the London Times that nearly one in two people in the UK dread waking up every morning to go to work. (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing at this. 59% say they're unhappy in their jobs. And 26% say they're absolutely never happy, like no single moment during their day or week that they're happy at work. So since you're in the thick of things over there, we've never had a guest from London before. Help us understand why the entire United Kingdom seems to be so utterly distressed and disengaged. (laughs) It's such a good question. I mean, one of the things we have to remember is these are estimates, you know, so they ask people on surveys to say what you think. And whenever you measure things, there's going to be some measurement error. So, you know, we, we can't act like it's really 15 or 18 percent for real. But I think that what we can believe in is just the trends. You know, I think that we can believe that the vast majority of the world, um, but also the UK, are disengaged from work. And um, there's this phrase, they call it work for a reason. (laughs) And I think that the vast majority of the world probably see work as this negative thing that you have to put yourself through because you need a paycheck. And I think it's actually rare, you know, literally an uncommon event to have a person say, I like going to work. It's entertaining. The people are smart. I get to fool around with my skills. 
So I think that part of what we're going to discuss here today is what makes that difference. You know, why is it that if the vast majority of the UK and even the world see work as a necessary evil in their life, how is it that sometimes there's this 15 or 20 percent that say, I'm excited to get up in the morning. I, I enjoy going and doing what I do best. Well, I love the idea that you can't nail down the number, and I totally agree with you. The notion that this is a trend, but the trend really sucks. I mean, yeah. if, if it's 15 or 20 or even 25 percent, right? right? right. So, right. I, you know, I, I'm reading this and I'm like, people can't get out of bed because yeah. I mean, so this I'm working for a reason. People are like, I wish I didn't have this reason because going there is killing my soul. Right. So I guess it's robbing I, what's best about me. It, it's absolutely right. It's killing yeah. my soul. And so, I mean, I guess I want to ask you, how is it possible to have such low numbers like these? I mean, these are really, yeah. truly low. What what is really going on over there? Yeah, I have a sense that what's changed in the last 150 years is that the vast majority of us are working in these big companies where we don't see the need for the work that we do. We often don't see the output of the work we do. And we feel like we're given a script that we have to fulfill, but it doesn't touch us or connect to us personally. So if you went back to the 1850s, you know, most people would be on farms. And while I'm not going to say farming is glamorous, I'm not going to act like it's some kind of beautiful moment when everything was perfect. But boy, you sure knew why you were doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, you were farming so you could feed your family. And you and could you see the it, impact of it. Absolutely. And the people who ate it were your family. Like, that's a pretty direct, immediate thing that you were doing. And if you did it poorly, you had a bad crop, you weren't going to eat. If you didn't get enough for the winter, you were going to have a really tough winter. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't get enough to trade with other people for diversity of food, you were going to have a really tough time. And so starting around 1890, you know, when we did this industrial revolution thing, we went from people working on firms or two people in a cobbler shop or, you know, where you really saw the customer walk in. Like, let's talk about that. Say you had a shoe shop back in 1850. Every customer that came in, you would say, OK, let me touch your foot now and make you a pair of shoes bespoke. And this new thing that we did in 1890 was to say, like, you know, we're not going to be 20 people working a little farm or one family working a little farm. We're going to be Monsanto. You know, <laughs> we're going to we're not going to be two people in <laughs> a shoe store. Right. We're going to be Nike with 63,000. And so one way to think of this is we as a human, you know, as a species, we intentionally took the purpose out of the work. We intentionally made it small, repetitive. We made it so that you got a tiny little piece. Like you might spend eight hours, nine hours a day negotiating for shoelaces. Like not the whole shoe, just the laces. And you're dealing with people in India and China to get the lowest prices and the highest quality. And like you don't even run. Like you don't talk to customers. You don't design shoes. You just are told get the lowest price on that particular thing. And, you know, what I think that leads to is a part of our brain being shut down, a part of our brain that would have developed over hundreds of thousands of generations to be in pursuit of better ways of doing things, of exploring and trying to figure out the world, of looking for your impact. You know, our, our brain was developed to do that. Well, lots of companies shut that down. And I think that the result of this is 
literally shutting off part of the brain that makes life feel like it's worth living. Well, you have this wonderful perspective because you've been educated in the United States, but you're obviously working in London. Do you have a sense that things really are that worse? In other words, 33%, I think, is Gallup's newest number. Let's say your number is 15. So it's twice as bad. Let's put it that way, right? But there's a substantial difference between 15 and 33. So yeah. is there something about the culture within England, within the UK, within yeah. your own culture that, you know, sort of, are you doing something that really kills this spirit the way you were just describing it? And we're going to get into yeah. the seeking system in a minute. Absolutely. It's a great question. I'm going to riff with you about it. It's not as though I have a preformed opinion about this one. But if I had to just muse a little bit and kind of contemplate, I think that one thing is that there's a real modesty, which kind of sounds like a good word, but it also means you hide what you're best at. And I think that there is a way of thinking about work some people call it the tall poppy syndrome, mm -hmm. where you kind of keep your head down and you kind of just try to fit in. Like, so while modesty is a good word and we don't want to be arrogant slobs, I also think that there's a sense in which if the expectation is that you hide away what's best about yourself, then again, this part of the brain isn't going to be lit up. This is going to be something where you're kind of looking for the conformity. I think that's one thing. I think a second thing about the UK culture, and again, I'm not saying this in a bad way, but I think that it's understated. And I think mm -hmm. that part of what you wouldn't do is talk about how you're going to change the world and how you're developing these exciting new products or extraordinary new services that are going to create a sense of wow. You know, mm -hmm. that's just not, that's something that we would talk about in the United States unabashedly. Right. And we well, would that's even very have a, American. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, right. We would have pride about creating wow. Yeah. Here, I think that, again, not in a way that I'm embarrassed about. Like, I love living here. I would have come back a long time ago if I didn't love living here. But I would say that it's not appropriate to say that you're going to inspire customers and create a sense of wow. It's not as appropriate to be inspirational that way. And it's not appropriate to sort of overreach in terms of what you're capable of or what your aspirations are. It's just seen as something you, you might think, but you wouldn't talk about a lot. <laughs> but wouldn't people be much better off if the leadership shifted so that going back to this language of, I work for a reason, which has this just dark connotation, you know, there's a gun to my head. It's oppressive. I wish I didn't have to do it. I got to suck up the next 10 hours, all of that, right? So, by the way, in the article that I read in the Times, just like this week, they said that one of the things that people were absolutely desperate for was simple expressions of appreciation and recognition. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're missing the very basics of management. And I can't imagine that that's sort of an understated approach, right? So it seems like we just... Why isn't there a greater inclination, I suppose, to say, how can we make this better for people? How can we make this better for ourselves? Why are people so resigned to have 85% or some range of that number, that trend line, if you will? That just strikes me as is sort of this easy target to sort of fix that we could make some. And I'm going to ask you in a second, what are some of the simple things that leaders and managers can do to sort of elevate this? But why isn't there more pressure to do that? Wow. One of the things I like about what you're saying that I believe deeply in is that the approaches that we can use as leaders and as employees, 
the approaches that we can use to get more living into work and to make work feel more like it's real life, something we care about, something we're excited to wake up and do, it doesn't take money. It takes a different mindset. It takes a different way of thinking about what a great organization is and does. And I'm you know, really, really happy to talk with you about that stuff. But at that top level, it's actually exciting for me when I'm teaching this stuff because you don't need you know, 100 million to put in a new brand recognition system or 3 million to put in a new information technology system. It's not those types of financial investments that it takes, but I think it takes a new way of thinking about employment and what employees are there for. And again, just to kind of just dig one last time back to the Industrial Revolution, in 1880, 1890, when we invented that approach, you know, like you think about maximizing efficiency, you think about getting hundreds or even thousands of workers in lines where each person does a tiny repetitive act, where the behaviors are so scripted that you might do the same thing 40, 50 times a day, and then do the same thing for 10 or 15 years. It's really important to remember that the world didn't change as much back then. Like, not only did we not have computers and the internet, we didn't even have phones yet. So like, even as late as 1905, you got Henry Ford making a car in one color, black, for 13 years. One color. And then consumers' taste started to change a little bit. So we added a second color. But like, it's just interesting to remember that the assumptions, the mindset that management had back then when we kind of invented it, a lot of that is still pervasive today. It's like handed down over the generations that this is how you manage people. And a lot of those assumptions were built in a time when the world didn't change so much. But now, you know, we have hyper competition. We have machine learning and AI. We have the internet and constant access to all information. We have unlimited funding for new ideas. It's just like we're using an 1890 set of assumptions to manage an extremely different set of what I'll call organizational conditions. But I don't know anything else in my life where we've clung to something that's a century old. Right. Yes. I mean, all the other technologies are changing, you know, I mean, yeah, we have cell phones now we've, you know, th- I mean, you just look at what's changed in a hundred years and everything has. So yeah, I, I never, I've never really understood how it is that we yeah. could pass on here. I want to tell yeah. you, Dan, I'm your father and this is how you go out and manage people. And this is how my father taught me and my grandfather taught him. And why would we pass on something that's so ineffective? Mm. <laughs> And I guess it's really just since the late 80s, if I'm you know, using my own sort of lens on this, it's really just since the late 80s that this thing sort of went crazy. You know, by the time we started dealing with the internet is when it seemed to me that we went from, even when I was learning, that when I first was in school learning about like change and creating organizational change, we were still using this like every 10 years kind of thing. Like every 10 years, you're going to have to update some stuff. And then by about 1995, you know, we're kind of sliding into that internet age. It started to be like, oh, wait, maybe it's going to have to be a little more quick. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of like every three months we're changing. 
But going back to leadership, this is the the last frontier here. For some reason, we've been willing to say, well, you know, everything else is changing around us, but boy, do we have a good way of managing people when, of course, we don't. So why do you think we cling to this? And then I want to transition into talking about the seeking system and, and your book. Well, the only thing I'm going to start off with that, because I don't know how deep we want to go in it, but I do love the topic, is there is an enormous disease that comes along with power. Some people even call it the CEO disease, but it affects people way lower than CEOs. And what that means is a lot of things that are common sense in the real world are not common in organizational life because it's almost like once we start getting some power over other people, it's like we get a lobotomy. You know, we forget a lot of the basic things that you already know in terms of like managing yourself, managing your family, managing your children, you know, thinking about ways to get collective action when you're going on a vacation or when you're pulling a team of friends together or out playing intramurals. I mean, there's just so much basic things that we know about trust and respect and praising people for their accomplishments and giving gratitude for people's best that somehow when we get into organizational life, we start to think it's all transactional. And it's all just about me telling you what to do and then making sure that I pay you so that you do it. And all of a sudden we forget about like how the biggest part of our brain is emotional. It's only the newest, smallest part of our brain that even knows what logic is and has words. But like the biggest part of our brain is an emotional center and we kind of like to pretend that doesn't exist in organizational life. Mm-hmm. I think you nailed something here. I'm really glad we went into this. Dr. Keltner at Cal Berkeley has proven that, and this will be hard for people to believe, but I wrote an article about this. If anybody's interested, they can dig it out on my website. But basically what he proved is that if you give anybody power, all of us, we will abuse it. And so the whole idea of, you know, where we're going to go with the rest of this conversation is, is that by caring about people, supporting people, by being concerned about, you know, whether they have a sense of purpose and mission and fulfillment and happiness, all those kinds of things. I can see when we get to be managers, we sort of lose focus on the importance of that and even giving that to people because we're so sort of unfortunately consumed with the focus on what we want to do and need to do in order to sustain what we have, which is the power. Yeah, that's it. And like that thing, that that power driver, it, it not only makes us see the worst in others and believe the worst about others, it makes us think when we get a lot of power, it makes us think other people are a means to our ends, that they're instrumental means to our ends. And so there's so much about the way that we treat them and the assumptions that we use to motivate them that are not only misguided, but often lead to worse results. You know, it's, there's a lot of counterintuition around that. So yes. we're, we'll have a good time with this. You know what I mean? And I do think it's changing, by the way. And the, boy, I'll say this. One of my great hopes about the speed of change and the fact of robotics and machine learning and AI is that the firms that are not able to change and the leaders that are not able to see this light they won't be in business for very long. I absolutely believe you. And I also, you know, I thought, well, is this going to be a wave? Is this going to be an evolution? 
And I'm sort of at the point now where I believe that it's going to be neither of those. There's going to be this moment of reconciliation where companies say, you know what, if we don't do this, we're not going to survive. And because of that, I think it's going to hit a tipping point where everybody does it all at the same time. I don't know when that's going to happen. I'm sort of mystified that it hasn't happened so far because, you know, as Jim Harder said, who's head of research at Gallup, he goes, look, the science is pretty clear on what works here. We're just not putting it into practice, you know? Yes. At this point, I I really do agree with that, Mark. And I think that at this point, there are some leaders, like as we see and hear more about servant leadership, and we see and hear humble leadership, there's some leaders, first off, they've always been out there. There's always been some leaders out there that get this stuff. Yes. But the majority are these, I'm going to say it, I'm I'm a little saddened by it, but I'm going to call MBA leaders, Mm -hmm. where they sort of learn what they think they know about management from textbooks and from sort of this hand-it-down management, as opposed to people that have started an organization, grown it from scratch, and have watched the potential of humans drive growth. And I just think that there are some leaders that get that. But the number of leaders that see it as a a game that you have to play to almost exploit work out of people, I would say that that's still the majority of leadership that's out there. And I think it directly relates to those high disengagement numbers you talked about. Well, I think you're making a really another great point here. And and I have to be critical of MBA programs historically because they have been so disproportionately focused on the financial aspects, manipulating an income statement and the balance sheet. And hey, man, if you run into trouble, you're not going to hit your quarterly earnings. Just let some people go. And, you know, I um, spoke to somebody you might know, G. Richard Schell at Wharton. This is probably about four or five years ago. And it was only then that he, as a humanist, was asked to recreate the curriculum Mm -hmm. at Wharton's business school, you know, arguably number one, number two, number three best schools in the country. And it's only been in the last few years where they said, hey, we're managing human beings and we don't teach you this. So these MBA guys, they're coming out basically leveraging the tools that they've been given. And so I'm happy to see that University of Michigan, Cal Stanford, Wharton now, some of these schools, the MIT, they're doing some really brilliant work around demonstrating that we need to do things differently from humans. But I understand why we're where we are based on how we've been educating people for a very long time. That's right. That's right. I'm glad that you said that. And while this isn't the podcast for this conversation, I think that there's something really interesting about how many MBA programs were set up in the 70s. You know, if you go back to the 50s, there really weren't MBA programs, but there were a lot of businesses. And it's just interesting how we have kind of cut our teeth on them. And the way they were set up, again, were to solve a different set of problems And we're still kind of teaching those same classes. We're still acting like those things are important, like 1980s style mergers and acquisitions and, you know, just how we value companies and how we use, you know, we sort of put Black-Scholes valuations above human potential. And it's just, oh man, it's just a really funny thing how we too, meaning the business schools that ought to be cutting edge, we haven't kept up with the pace of change either. And there's just so many things about, like one thing I'll say to you that I find really, really uh, interesting and a bit encouraging. We're still acting like you have to create job descriptions that script employees' behaviors. And one of the things I'm saying in my classes these days is if there's a job that you can script the behaviors in advance, that's not going to be a job much longer. 
between machine learning, AI, and robotics, what we now need to unleash, what we need to tap into is what we can't script. You know, the energized creativity, the proactive entrepreneurship, the sort of getting in front of the problem before it's even a problem without waiting for your boss to tell you to fix it. And that unscripted, creative, proactive contribution is what leaders of tomorrow need. But we're still kind of acting like this is the job description because 10 years ago we wrote it this way. (laughs) This is why I think it's going to be a tipping point because it's just going to fail. That, you know, yes, it's just yes. simply going to fail. It's already happening, my friend. I mean, you know? if you look at, you know, All right, you've encouraged yeah. me that this, yeah. you know, because a lot of people are terrified about what's about to happen. And that's you know, why I, um, it's right. It's right that you say they're terrified. And I think that I was there three years ago. I now see it as very hopeful for humanity. I actually see it as like, we ain't exactly doing it right today. Yep. And we know that 90%, you know, 85% of the people are not only disengage with what they do, but like have a hard time getting out of bed. You know, that's called depressive symptoms. Like we are not getting it right as a human species. <laughs> if, I mean, that's, we a, are... that's a wonderful point. It's like, hey, how, you know, it couldn't be any worse. Could Listen, it? it's broken. <laughs> I mean, you know, you were dreading going to work. Well, now you don't have to. No, I'm, you know, I'm kidding. But I am, I'm, I'm growing in that optimism as well, that we're going to be demanded, you know, to be more human and that the skills that make us human, the empathy, the, the collaboration, the cooperation, the, you know, compassion, those those kinds of things that sound woo-woo to some people are going to be what differentiates successful people going forward. Don't you agree? That's right. I think not only successful people, but I also think successful leaders and I think successful organizations. It scales right up. You know, it's almost like a fractal in a sense, which is you could even go to then you could go to society. You know, you could go like at the level of like, okay, what's going to make the world work is what's going to make the country work, which is what's going to make the organizations work, which is going to make the teams work, which is the leaders work, which is, you know, it's sort of like it scans and scales up and down because what we need today is fast change, agility, innovation. You know, this is what is making not only competitive advantage, meaning winning, it also seems to be what's leading to sustainability, yep. which, again, we, we really haven't baked that into leadership and organizations yet either. That's, we're still kind of, again, operating in that 1970s, like, burn it. <laughs> you know, just get it done at any cost. Exactly. Who cares about And I think we're only now seeing, uh, well... You know, we may not have much of an Earth anymore if we let global yeah. warming happen and if we continue to burn fossil fuels and, and if we continue to exploit labor in China. And if, you know, I think that we're just starting to get our heads around the notion of sustainable enterprise. Well, we went down a road that I didn't anticipate, and I'm so glad we did because we talked about some things that have been on my mind for a really long time. So I'm hoping our audience appreciate this. I want to get into the core idea of your book. And you tell us that human beings have what's called a seeking system. And it's, you describe it as being biological, emotionally driven interest in having experimentation, learning new things, expressing our unique selves, and finding meaning. So we're, we're naturally wired to do this. And Obviously, we want to apply this to work where we spend most of our lives. So tell us about our seeking system and how it connects into employee engagement. Great. I'm going to start off with a caveat. You know, readers and listeners should hear that I'm not a neuroscientist. I read a lot. I read an awful lot about neuroscience. And in particular, 
where do the emotions come from in the brain? That's the thing that I really dove deep on. And that's called affective neuroscience. Affective implies the emotions and neuroscience is the brain. So I do think I know a thing or two about it, but I'm a psychologist. And so, you know, take that grain of salt. But what seems to be true about this part of the brain is that it is an innate, like you use the great word, the wiring. It's innate. It's not something that you have to learn. This is something like if you got a four-month-old and they're sitting there playing with some toy or, you know, batting at some mobile or something, and you shake some keys, some car keys in front of it, you have to think, does it flinch and shy away or does it reach out and try to touch? And what children do is they reach out and try to touch new things. And then they put them in their mouth. You know, it's just a pretty messed up thing evolutionarily. Like you could imagine the opposite instinct. You could imagine an instinct being, oh, that's new. I should pull my hand away. It might hurt me. That's not what the instinct is. The instinct is, let me reach out and try to learn more about that and then put it in my mouth because I'm going to try to figure out as much as I can about that thing. Now, evolutionarily, that's going to kill some kids. You know, we're going to lose some kids from that instinct. <laughs> Not where I thought yeah. you were going. Okay. <laughs> evolutionarily, it's more important to learn about the environment than adapt to it than to provide safety and hide yourself from information. Hiding yourself from information is the surest way to have a species go extinct. The surest way to survive at the species level is to learn about the environment so that you can adapt to it. And so one of the things that humans do, maybe in a different way than other mammals, all mammals have this part of the brain, the seeking system too. You know, for instance, if you have a bear, let's just take a bear, and it's well-fed, and it has a cave, and it's warm, it has everything it needs in that cave right then, it goes out ambling. It goes over and like turns over a log and sees what's under there, and then it goes and it crosses a river and checks that out. And like it, that ambling is an exploration behavior, and it's motivated from within. That's an intrinsic drive telling that bear to like, hey, look under this log. It's the same with humans. You know, we're motivated to learn about our world and to explore it. But what seems different about humans is we have this part of the brain called the frontal cortex, and some people call it the prefrontal cortex. It's where language lives, and it's where our simulation center lives. It's like it's what allows us to look into the future and look into the past and place ourselves in history. Well, what's so weird is when you put together this seeking system, which all mammals have, you know, explore, 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 look for your impact on the world, look for cause and effect, and then you add in this idea of telling stories about the past, telling stories about the future, having language. Put those two things together and it looks like humans ask why. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for meaning. We're trying to attribute meaning instead of just cause and effect. And um, some of these neuroscientists, like this one guy named uh, Yak Panksep, he was at Washington State University. He literally wrote the book on affective neuroscience. He says that when you put these two parts of the brain together in a human being, not only do we have this urge to explore and try to learn new things and express what's unique about ourselves, like that we have a self and that that's unique and that we want to be able to express what's unique about ourselves. He says we also want to have a sense of purpose and meaning in our behaviors, and boy, I got to tell you, Mark, when I learned about that part of the brain, it literally was in a book called Affective Neuroscience, written by this guy named Yak Pinksep. My own brain lit up. I was like, holy cow, I mean, this is what I've been missing. 
this is what I was looking for to help me explain what's wrong with organizational life. All of a sudden, it showed me like what bureaucracies do is shut off this part of the brain. You know, what a bureaucracy, what the Industrial Revolution did is it said, you're not special, you're just a drone, and we can put you in an assembly line and teach you in a day. And we can have you do not exploration, but repetitive actions. And we can not allow you to try new things, but tell you, here's exactly how you're going to do it. And we're not going to give you any sense of meaning or impact or purpose. We're going to say, you're doing it for the money. The only reason why you're doing it is because we're going to give you some money. It's not going to be interesting, and you're never going to see your impact. You're going to do a tiny, predictable, disconnected action again and again and again, not because intrinsically you want to do it, because extrinsically we're going to give you double the pay you could get somewhere else. And if you don't do that well, we're going to fire you. We're going to take that money away from you. We're going to take away your ability to eat and provide for your family. We're going to kill you in every possible way. Yeah, um, we're sliced by a thousand cuts. Exactly. So let's transition into a discussion about the solutions here. So yep. I'm making you king. That's appropriate where you live. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of my standard questions is you're in charge of the world and you're talking to CEOs who are desperate for the advice on how to not they're not necessarily asking you, how do I bring my employees to life? They're saying, how do I bring my organization to life? Yeah, which correct. were one of the two. So the trick question is, how do you solve the problem we have? And so tell me about how you appeal to the seeking system from a leadership yeah, standpoint. That's great. And there are three triggers that I can demonstrate. And in, you know, I, I've got a lot of evidence for the three triggers. There might be more. That's the thing. It's not as though I think I've got like the final answer on all the different ways, but three defensible triggers are, I'll, I'll say them really quickly and then we can unpack them as much or as little as you want. Okay. Um, number one is the idea of allowing people to express what's best about themselves. Some people just call this self-expression. Some talk about letting people play to their strengths. Some people talk about allowing people to be their best self. I don't mind too much about the vernacular, but overall what we're talking about is each of us has a set of unique skills, we have a unique set of perspectives, we have a unique set of interests. When you tap into that and you allow people to demonstrate that, it lights them up, it lights up this part of the brain. And by the way, when the seeking system gets lit up, it delivers dopamine as a reward system, and dopamine is like the legal cousin to cocaine. You know, it's like, uh, it's an exciting excitement maker. You could almost call it like an excitement maker. It makes people feel buoyed and buoyant. It creates a feeling of zest that life is an adventure that's worth doing. And so that's the first trigger that helps okay. release that dopamine. The second one is letting people explore and experiment at work. Now, they don't have to be doing that eight hours a day. But a little bit of that every day, and certainly a little bit of that every week, is something that allows them to think about their work as a platform for learning and trying new things, and not just a platform for rote, redundant, repetitive behaviors. So that's the second one. And then the third one is this sense of purpose that we talked about. It's seeing the impact of what I do and caring about the impact that I create. So I call this personalizing purpose. It's not the kind of purpose that goes on a website. 
you know, that like at Lego, we build future engineers or at, you know, Airbnb, we create friendships across international borders. You know, I don't mean that kind of purpose. That's fine. I don't mind that kind of purpose. What I mean is personalized purpose, which is when I sit here and work for four hours and create this document, I know who's going to be reading that document. And I know that if I don't do it well, this is how it's going to hurt them. Or if I do a really good job on this document, I know who's going to be really happy with me because it's going to make their life easier down the road. And so those three triggers are defensible ways to light up this sinking system and get some dopamine racing around in people's bloodstreams. Okay, awesome. So let's take them one at the time here. And the first one is really basically what, you know, Tom Rath has said, you know, yep. put strengths to work, right? And Correct. so, and this is something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast, actually, this whole idea that we have this sort of human instinct, sadly, to fault find. And if only Mark could get better at this, he would be really good, as opposed to saying, this is what about Mark makes him really good. So I think I want to pin that down and say, is that the essence of this? That is clearly the essence of it. I think that you, you know it and understand it at a really deep level. And lots of leaders have the right words. That is to say, they've also read the books, Play to Your Strengths. They've also read these ideas about playing to your strengths and so on. When it comes down to their job, though, and their performance management, and their feedback systems. They're trying to catch people when they've messed up, rather than trying to catch people doing something right. The way that they give raises and bonuses has to do with finding the losers and not giving them much, so that you can give it to the winners who hit all the metrics. And so it is often a thing that leaders say but not a way that organizations act and that leaders act. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, but I want to ask you why. Mm. You know, so, I mean, you, you just sort of, you know, you took me to this journey of I'm reading this book. There are people that are constantly saying, have you read this? Have you read this? And I know people are reading books and they're trying to absorb as much leadership information. And yet the metrics don't seem to suggest that all that reading is paying off. So what's happening? Why aren't people able to take what they're learning and apply it? Are we so fixed on our old ways? What do you think that is? Mm. There's um, a combination. It's like a horrible cocktail. And I think that the cocktail is one of control and fear. If you had to say what management is, it's using fear to get control. I think that that's how it's been created. And I think that fear is an extremely powerful emotion. That is to say, when we're afraid, we focus on the threat and we really get a jolt of energy. Now, evolutionarily, we weren't supposed to be afraid all the time. <laughs> you know, like you weren't being chased by a tiger all the time. A lot of um, the days and the weeks and the months, you wouldn't even have fear. But then when there was fear, it would keep you alive. It would focus you on the predator. And it would try to give you a jolt of adrenaline and, and endorphins and cortisol. Mm -hmm. And then that would focus you on the threat and get you ready to fight, flight, or freeze. Well... I think that what we did with management is we co-opted that and we now hit that button a lot, <laughs> you know, to get the employees to focus and do what we want them to do. That's how we kind of created our HR systems, which are deep in the gene pool of organizational life. 
you know, how do we hire people? Well, first we say, here's the job. And then we find somebody that's going to do it. And we tell them to do it. And like onboarding is you got to do this job. Like we don't care about you. We're going to bring you in because we need you to do this thing. And then to do that, we're going to have these evaluation systems. We're going to measure exactly what we're going to have you do. And if you miss those targets, well, then there's not going to be raises and bonuses. And there's going to be kind of, you know, threats and dismissals and and so I think the whole approach of setting up organizational life is about we know what needs to get done. And now we just have to find a way to make you do the thing that we already know. And what's so new is a lot of times today leaders don't know. The leaders are really far from the action. And a lot of times they don't know the changes in customers' tastes. And they don't really understand what the problems are in customer service. And so they're a million miles away, but they're still trying to use these old levers these fear-based levers of if we can get everybody to know what their metrics are in advance, we can hand those out in January, and then come December, we can measure who did what and then punish the ones that didn't get it. So quickly tell me what the solution is, because obviously I love the image of, you know, we keep hitting that button because we think it works, (laughs) right? Well, you know what? You have just made me think a new thought. We don't know. This is really important. We don't know what the right answer is. One way to say it is, for over 100 years, we've been using a system that's getting a little bit more broken every decade. And in the last two decades, the breaks, the cracks, the fissures have become untenable. They're now, you know, now we're having Kodak go out of business and, you know, Blockbuster go out of business and, you know, these huge billion dollar juggernauts just can't change. Now it looks like GE's on the shopping block, you know. It's just incredible to watch these organizations that used to be so dominant just going under now. And what we're learning is it's broken. We're knowing is there's better ways to motivate. But to be honest, we don't know what the new HR systems are. Like I can tell you what the three triggers are, and that's a neuroscience. That's a biology. And that's, you know, those are true, demonstrably true. But how do we, for example, gather information on who the best employer team is when we don't really know what we're going to be doing in two years? Like, we can't describe the job because it's not going to be that job even in two years, probably not in one year. So should we stop hiring individuals and maybe hire teams? That's one really interesting thing. We just haven't asked that question even. Here's another one. So onboarding, I've got a bunch of research myself saying it works best to onboard people when you don't start with the job or the company, you start with the employee and say, who are you when you're at your best? Well, nobody's doing it that way. You know, we're still starting with the assumption that HR is, we have to bring you in to do what we know, but we're not saying we're bringing you in because you're really smart and like, we don't know what our problems are, but we're bringing you in so you can help us solve those problems. Mm -hmm. These are very new ways of thinking about human resource systems. And to be honest, I and nobody I know has the answers. We're on the front end of that curve. Well, at least you're tossing out ideas and and also sort of pinning down that what we're doing isn't working, which is, I think, we need to hear over and over. You can't shift out of your old thinking until you're convinced that it no longer succeeds, right? And I went recently and watched a guy, this is a CTO, this guy, Oscar, I forget his last, he's the CTO, chief technology officer of Spotify. Hmm. 
and he has a really nice podcast. They're only whatever, uh, 1,800 employees now. It's not like they're, you know, GE size organization, but they're really creating waves in how the world listens to music. And they're having a disproportionate impact on the world right now for their 1,800 employees. But if you go and watch how that CTO talks about their culture and how they go about setting up office space, how they go about setting up teams, how they go about thinking of leadership and, you know, almost like organic leadership where the leader's job is to listen to what the employees need and then help them get the resources they need to do their jobs better. I have a feeling that if you want what I think is the future it would be like what I'm hearing about Spotify and not to say they've got it perfect. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to act like I've got the answer and like, Oh yeah, that's it. You just all got to go. But when you learn about agile teams where they own end to end deployment of invention, creation, scaling and deployment, like the team owns the whole thing. And so the sense of purpose is high. They're getting people to play to their strengths. They're getting people exploring new solutions on a weekly basis boy, they're going to be a hard organization to compete with. But, you know, I mean, we're talking a lot about the brain and the seeking system. And in your book, I was very grateful to read that, you know, that you imply that we don't know that it's all in the brain. And I, I happen to believe that it's distributed through the body and that the mm -hmm. heart plays a role mm -hmm. in this. But even mm -hmm. if the heart is just a metaphor in this discussion, the whole idea of what you just described is all about positive feelings and emotions. It's Correct. all about, right? It's all about Correct. making people feel like, hey, I came to work here not because these people want to exploit me for 10 hours a day, because they look at me and they say, you're something extra, man. You're you're talented. You're valuable. We want you here. Tell us about yourself. I mean, just yeah. that whole, right? So yeah. more heart, wow. less brain is really the yeah. whole thesis here. Do you agree? And well, Mark, I mean, you're, you're really good at getting the big picture quickly. And I appreciate you reading the book because I can tell you got it. So here's one thing that I think is really true at a high level. What used to get an organization's competitive advantage is having alignment, predictability, control. That isn't good in a world that changes frequently and where AI and machine learning are going to pick up a lot of that work. What we need now to have a sustained competitive advantage is innovation, creativity, ability to change quick, ability to share information. This is what's going to be the recipe for success in the future. Now, the old thing, what gets you control is fear. If you try to use fear to get creativity, you'll fail every time. The new emotions of competitive advantage are these positive emotions that you're describing, excitement, curiosity, gratitude, love. Like if you want to create an organization where people share information with each other, then love is a way better emotion than cynicism or greed. If you want an organization where creativity is what the output is, then the input has to be curiosity and excitement, not fear. So the way that you put it is just so smart because it's not like we're saying leaders need to do this because they're humanitarian. Boy, I'd love it if that was the case, too. Yeah, me too. The nobility <laughs> I, is not going to happen. Yeah. No, it's not going to happen tomorrow. What's going to happen tomorrow is a leader's going to say, shit, if I don't start using positive emotions, my organization's exactly. going to die. <laughs> and, and they are. They're going to say it just the way you said it. They're going to go, shit, I got to change. I got to change. I am completely 
in agreement with you. And I've been through the whole timeline and I thought, no, you know what? Somebody's going to hear this, this message. And, you know, I'm speaking on my own behalf now, but the, the whole idea of, you know, caring about people, supporting people and their needs is the way to drive performance is one idea that has met with profound resistance. <laughs> and, you know, right. I've taken a lot of punches and you put the word heart in it and then it's almost like dead on arrival for people. It's like, oh my God, you know. How could that possibly be true? This guy doesn't get business, all of that. Now people are like beginning to realize that what we're talking about is true, but there's still the, oh shit, I gotta like, <laughs> you know, I don't yes. wanna do it this way. I wanna do yes. it the old way, you know? So, and, and why? Not because I'm evil, but because that's the way I've been taught. Correct. That's the way I know. Correct. I don't think people wake up in the morning and say, how can I torture some more no, souls today? Exactly. Nobody's no, very few people are like that. I am totally in agreement with you. Yeah. All right, Dan. So listen, I want to make sure that we, the time doesn't run away from us. And I do want to just sort of tell my audience right now that I want to say it in the sense that the conversation went in a totally different direction. I agree. That I ever anticipated. And I like I have questions here and I've really thought this through and we went in a totally different direction, but it's actually one of the coolest conversations I've ever had. So I just want to put that out there. I think you have done a wonderful job of pinning down some things that I think are pretty critical for people. So well done. I didn't get to anywhere near the number of questions that I had, and I'm totally fine with that. But we do have something on our podcast. It's a tradition. And we take a quick break from the discussion and we transition into what we call the heartbeat round. Oh, good. What we want to do, Dan, just to explain it a little bit, is we get a little bit more personal insight into you by asking some quick answer questions. So I'm going to ask you the question and have you give your most instinctive answer to it. And I've got about 15 of them and then we'll get back to the conversation. How's that? That sounds great. I like it. Okay, cool. So you ready? Here we go. Yeah. One big lesson your two daughters have taught you. Ah, okay. I have two daughters, Daisy and Violet. One thing that is an absolute that I've learned is that honest conversations have to start really early. Like as early as when they first ask you how, where babies come from. And if you start talking about storks and making shit up, by the time they're six, they're going to know you're lying about things. And you won't have started down a path of honesty. And I have found it to be really instructive and illuminating and important that at each age, you tell them the best truth you know if you want them to respect you later. That's something I feel I've learned. Your favorite word? Zest. <laughs> you know, that's so funny because I read I that's in your book zest. and I'm like, who uses the word zest? I know, so, I know one person now. Um, <laughs> newspaper or, or magazine, you never miss reading. Oh, shit. I don't read. I um, intentionally do not read newspapers or magazines. I, I declared a news hiatus four years ago, so I'm off it. Um, what I don't miss, though, ever is the New Yorker fiction podcast. Every single one of them. I have listened to everyone that's ever come out, and I think it's fabulous. Awesome. I love literature. Yeah. The quality you admire most in other people. Mm. Well, um, to be honest, and I'm not just joking, zest would come up again. And what I mean by zest is, I want to say it, zest for me is the feeling that life is an adventure that you get to do, rather than how many people live it, which is like, Life is something I have to get through. And that difference 
is just so important to me. So again, I would say zest. I'd also say curiosity goes right in with that though. So curiosity, zest, that kind of thing. One surprising difference between living in the United States and living in England. <laughs> I'm going to say the meaning of pants. Really? <laughs> do you know what do you know what pants are here? No. Underwear. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> so if you say like, go put your pants on, like everybody looks at you real funny because it's like saying, go put your door on. <laughs> a cultural value every organization should have. Uh, same, zest and curiosity. Same thing again. I mean, to me, if you don't have that as an organization, you are done. I agree with you. A uh, book that profoundly shaped your life. Mm. Um, when you say profoundly shaped my life, I'm sure there's better answers. But what I would say is well, after I almost died, I can tell you about that some other time, I got into positive psychology and the science behind it. And I read a book by Barbara Fredrickson called Positivity. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and that shook me up. I would say that even though that was only about 15 years ago, that has fundamentally changed the way I approach the world and my own research as well. Wonderful. Her book, Love 2.0, is one of those that changed my life. So very good. Touche. The life lesson you wish you'd learned earlier in life. Well, again, um, me getting sick happened about 15 years ago, maybe 13 years ago. I used to feel that I was a little bit robust individualist who wasn't vulnerable, and I used to think that vulnerability meant weak. And when I became, as we all are, aware of how vulnerable I was, like how we're all on a razor's edge. And, you know, we can hit a car tomorrow, but we also get cancer tomorrow. And like when you realize how close we are to dying every day, that vulnerability made life a lot better for me. The gratitude that I'm not sick and the gratitude that I do get to live another day, another week is the best thing. It's the most delicious thing. And I, I just, I never saw it that way. I, I saw gratitude as weakness almost. And what I've learned is it's an incredible thing to have. Well, um, you know, this podcast has gone completely different direction. So I'm breaking all the rules here. Why do we need to have a near-death experience? You had cancer, you had Hodgkin's lymphoma, and you had chemotherapy every week for six months. Yeah. Why do we every, need every that? other week? But yeah. Every other week. Okay. Yeah. So why do we need that kind of an experience in our life to get into vulnerability and yeah. gratitude? I don't know the answer. I think we need another hour. Okay. But I can say that my next book deals with this issue. My next book has a strong component of what's called post-traumatic growth. And that is that sometimes after a deep trauma, when we get our assumptions challenged and questioned, and we can see for the first time how quickly it's over, it allows us to grow into something much, much stronger than before the trauma. Wonderful. I mean, this is why failure has to, we have to allow people to fail yes. because of the profound implications of that, right? That's it. That's it. Meditation practice, yay or nay? Well, the evidence is yay, first off. The, the, sort of the, the evidence is in on that, and it is a yay. It helps in negotiations. It helps with art. It helps with there's all sales are higher. And I do it myself. I joined Headspace. I think a lot of people have. I'm probably a four times a week guy. The days that I do it are better days. Mm -hmm. It is hard to make the time. That's weird, but true. Totally agree with you. World leader of any era you most admire. I got a pass on this one. Oh, no. There's um, one that stands out? Uh, there's cheap examples, but um, 
I mean, this is important because we're talking about leadership here. And if we don't have models, we're in trouble. I'm not going to be speaking from the heart is the problem. When we use these examples, we're holding up straw. I'd like to say straw men, but I don't want to be sexist. We often haven't worked with a Gandhi and been their spouse. We, we often haven't mm-hmm. hung out with Richard Branson. I never was under Steve Jobs. Like I can come up with like placeholders, but I don't believe them. So like the leaders that I would talk about are ones that I've hung out with and I've watched the way they've transformed like a tire manufacturing organization up in St. Petersburg in Russia. But like he, you'll never heard of him. You know, he affected. But I think the takeaway here is, is that we're all human. We all have limitations and you have to be willing in just this simple exercise of saying who are the leaders that you admire to say, well, that guy could be a real jerk sometimes, or that yes. guy has some huge fundamental flaws. However, yes. this is what he's able to do. So I, this conversation is really kind of mystifying me where it's gone. <laughs> Your synonym for the word heart. Uh, I like what you were saying about gut and feelings and emotions. Like for me, I actually think it isn't all in the brain. A lot of it Yay. starts in the brain. But there's a good amount of science that like it is sprinkled throughout the body. And so like your gut, uh, what a lot of people call gut, it's that instinctual emotion response where it's your subconscious talking. So I I like I just I like the question. I like the question. Seville row or business casual? I'm so business casual, my friend. I, I don't wear ties anymore. When I was 25 and I got my first job at Georgia Tech, I was a bow tie man or a <laughs> lot of bow ties. And I was like struggling for a shtick. Nowadays, the shtick I think is me. And I try not to, I love wearing flowered shirts and I love wearing jeans when I teach and stuff like that. But like, I try to like be there for the people a lot more than like, putting on a show and what, what I wear. I try to make that not make that so important, really. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life? Um, <laughs> meditation. <laughs> All right, good. Um, I, yeah, I do think meditation, the future is in meditation. We just have to get there. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, humility. Humility. I, I, I really try to work hard not... You know, when you write books that get kind of successful and you're a professor that's kind of successful, even at that tiny micro level, you still have to fight that disease of arrogance and that disease of like thinking you know shit. And it's way better to stay super humble and just be like, I don't know that much about this, but here's what I think we're learning. You know, to maintain that attitude is something I'm working on every day. And the most underestimated and undervalued leadership trait of all. Definitely humility. The future is in humility. (laughs) All right, Dan, thank you. These are wonderful responses to these questions. So a jolly good show, I should say. (laughs) All right. So we are about to run out of time. Yeah, I think so. That's been really fun talking to you. We covered so much ground here, but I really want to make sure that you know that if there's something that we didn't cover, you now have the platform and the forum to share it. So is there anything, one, you know, something that you thought we're definitely going to cover that we didn't address in the conversation, something from Alive at Work or any life philosophy, anything you want to leave our audience with before we go? Just one thing. I think that a lot of our audience will be leaders and I don't mean they have to be CEOs. They can have a two-person team. But I have gotten a lot of progress with leaders around helping them understand the why of their own leadership. 
That is to say, for them to understand in a personal way why they lead. And if you read my book, but I don't say you have to read my book, if you read about some of this neuroscience I'm talking about, part of what a leader can be thinking about for the why of their leadership is that they're putting more living in other people's lives. I think that it's so compelling to remember that the leader is one of the most important figures in a worker's life because not only are they with that leader eight, 10 hours a day, but they're with them most of their waking hours. The leader has a massive impact on how work feels and work is mostly what we do while we're alive. And so I, I would leave that there's a heavy responsibility and I say that in a good way. There's a very heavy responsibility on leaders to ignite the seeking system instead of shutting it down, not only because it helps the organization win, but also because you're literally helping those humans have better lives. So I think that that's a great way to leave this podcast. Wonderful. We will leave it there. And on behalf of my listening audience, Dan Cable, I want to thank you again for joining me on the podcast. This was a wild conversation and truly informative. It's been a great pleasure. So thank you very, very much. I loved it. Thank you for having me on your show. You're welcome. As we close, I thought I'd include a quick reminder about who I am. I mean, in addition to being the podcast host, and this is something that I probably should have done earlier on in the podcast series, but I'm the author of a book called Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. I'm honored to say that it's been taught in eight American universities, including Northern Arizona University, the MBA program at the University of Iowa, and the Educational Leadership PhD program at Brandon University. As my regular podcast listeners know, I believe our traditional ways of leading people are failing. And with scientific research to back me, that caring about and supporting the human needs and people is the only way to fully restore workplace engagement. My goal with this podcast is to flesh out this thesis with some of the world's top leadership experts. I am both a professional speaker and a culture and workplace engagement consultant, and I invite you to reach out to me if I can help you or your organization in any possible way. And today, I especially want to thank my sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. I recorded my interview with Dan Cable early this morning, and Eric somehow managed to edit and produce it in time so that we could get the episode out today on schedule. So thank you very much, Eric. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, thanking you for listening, signing off for now. Mm -hmm.